0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And it's my distinct pleasure to welcome to the program today, Sham Sankar, the Chief Technology Officer of Palantir Technologies. He's been with the innovative uh, big data and artificial intelligence firm since 2006. Sham, thanks so very much for joining us and glad to finally have you on the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. Before we get started, a quick word from our sponsors, Bell Sponsors, our daily podcast, HII Sponsors, our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems Sponsors, our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications Sponsors, our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace Sponsors, our air and naval coverage. Um, I want to start with uh, the Biden administration's uh, executive order on artificial intelligence. There's a wide array of views uh, on the EO. right for many, it's a, it's a good start. Uh, to coordinate U.S. government uh, efforts by putting safety and transparency at the heart of this, putting the Commerce Department in, in in charge, whereas others look at this as saying, "Look, we're late, and this isn't really the right approach." Uh, looking at this as something dangerous, uh, as opposed to something actually that will be, you know, really breakthrough in its in its innovations. What what are what's your sense? I mean, did the administration uh, get this right, and if if not, what's the the constructive? Uh, recommendation you'd make as as somebody who's a leading player in this field?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. I, I think there are a lot of really complicated trade-offs here. So I definitely don't envy the, the folks who have to be working through it and taking the, the hard stance on it. But I think generally speaking, the EO is the start of the conversation. And if you view it as that, it accomplishes quite a bit by saying, look, every agency is going to have its own context. We want to sound the sound the bell here and say, we want you all to be thinking about it and to regulate it and manage it within the context that matters. Like how the VA needs to think about this is going to be very different than the IRS, than the DOD. And so that's kind of an appropriate frame setting there. The second thing that I think is smart about this is the emphasis on recruiting AI talent. Like we need those skills and capabilities here. We need the Oppenheimer and the Vannevar Bush to be inside of the government, to be really thinking about how we can apply these technologies not only safely, there's obviously a lot of emphasis on that, but efficaciously, let's not take the efficacy for granted here. There's still a lot to do uh, in terms of how we're going to get value out of this stuff. And I think the third part that's, that's very strong about it is that it encourages the transparency, the data lineage, the privacy. So it's it's putting kind of rails on how we should be thinking about um, the, the trust that we can build up in these systems and providing that sort of guidance. Now, these are things I think are good about it. If I could just say like my one kind of critique or concern or advice to folks who are thinking about this would be to be just really careful mitigating against risks that aren't in existence yet. You know, there, there's a fine line between being prescient and strangling the innovation environment. Um, and I think that, you, you know, it's you have to manage that. You can't, you can't set that context. It's not a set it and forget it thing. You have to be in there in the weeds, managing that balance. Um, and, and I think we've certainly gotten this wrong historically. Like when I think about drones, uh, right. General Atomics invented the drone. The drone in some sense is an American birthright, but somehow DJI has won the consumer market. And I think a right. lot of that has to do with the the frame that we have around drones, how the FAA thought about drones, the kind of consequences that can kind of came out of that, it, it could have been a massive source of American prosperity. And I think there's a kind of an under-discussed component of this, which is American prosperity is national security. National security provides American prosperity. And we kind of somehow gotten into a place where we decoupled these things. So we need to think about AI as the economic force that it's going to be. The fact that that is today really an American birthright. And, and, and not, not uh, strangling that off um, as we move
0: forward here. Um, you know, it's it's funny that you uh, mentioned that, right, because we had a tendency of thinking about the export of drones actually as, uh, you know, guided weapons, uh, as if somebody is going to buy a 40 million dollar or 20 million dollar drone and, and use it as a long range strike munition. You could uh, as opposed to saying, look, this is, uh, you know, we are basically selling uh, what, what was a reconnaissance capability. Let me ask you, you know, you testified before the Senate Armed Services Committee, you and Alex Karp, uh, earlier this summer, you and Alex Karp also participated in uh, a meeting with uh, Senate Majority Leader Schumer, uh, talking really about the future of the technology. And And one of the problems is, A, it's sort of seen as uh, you know, a degree of danger associated with the technology that we normally associate with nuclear weapons, which I think is interesting. And, and the second is, as if this is new, whereas actually AI has been around us for some time, and we've been using it, whether in the form of Siri uh, or actually in, in much more sophisticated uh, systems uh, that exist, right? It wasn't just chat GPT, and suddenly, you know, AI was was here in our face. How do we need, Sham, to be thinking about this technology and thinking out 5, 10, 15 years uh, in terms of what it will be and what it won't? Because, you know, people are saying, "Okay, robots are going to be killing us. That's a little bit of a stretch.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one is like always having the humility and this comes back to the EO a little bit of humility of like how much of the future can we totally understand? We can have a set of possible scenarios we can manage against those, but kind of like the not falling victim to the false precision of knowing exactly how these things are going to turn out. Now within that context what i see is okay we have this incredibly promising technology we we've, we've amassed a certain amount of power and compute that enables us to apply this in entirely new ways. It the, the technology has charisma. You know i think to your very point like look it, it we were able to you know with deep blue it, it beat kasparov the chess and right. with uh, alpha go it you know it, it kept so like to each person, the kind of form that the AI took had a certain amount of charisma. Maybe chess is less charismatic in the broad sense than something that can actually speak natural language back to you. right? And, and that is what I think has really captured the zeitgeist in this moment. But we're on this journey and, and there's, no, there's no reason to believe at all that we've plateaued here, that actually the rate of innovation will continue to accelerate. So with that, I think that the best defense in many ways requires a concomitant offense. You know, I'm not saying the best defense is an offense, but to somehow I think the greatest risk we face here is being paralyzed by thinking about a defense in the absence of how are we going to actually use this to create competitive advantage? How do we deploy this stuff? Um, and I think you know, the department's kind of been slow out of the gate here. And and okay, it's, it's a large institution, there's a lot to, to go on here. But when I compare that to the 50% of my business that is commercial, uh, the adoption of generative AI technologies is extraordinarily fast, and the rate at which people are thinking—you know—two months is essentially like a, a, an expiration date on old ideas. So um, right. we we don't want to lose the compounding advantage of how much our ideas can evolve over this time period.
0: And, and how is it that we need to think about adversaries? Right? We as Americans think boy, we've got this, You know, we are the leader in this, everybody else is a follower, whereas actually the AI game is changing and barriers are dropping, right? In part, uh, the agreement the president brokered earlier this year, by some was the big companies don't want to engage in an AI race. They don't want to be in an AI arms race, which is why they want to create some form of truce. Alex Karp has discussed what it is, what the state of this technological art is around the world and how our potential adversaries are using it, How do we need to bear that in the back of our mind, right? Like, how much of a leadership position do we actually have now, these a the other folks in terms of shaping how it is that we should be thinking about the technology?
1: I think that's an excellent point. Look, no one wants to be in a race. it's like a lot of work. um but we are in one. that that's just reality. and And I think right now we we do have the lead. but, We can't take that for granted, Um, you know, just like with drones, we've squandered leads in the past. And I think a lot of that comes down to how we take it for granted and how we think about what we're trying to get done with it. So um, I think many people have talked about the right things here. It's, It's about making those investments and going after it.
0: Let me uh, take you to uh, the, um, how the Pentagon does uh, business, right? you guys, uh, you joined the company in 2006. The original model was, hey, I'm coming up with this incredible software. Uh, I just want your data, uh, right? I'll give you the software for free. Uh, and the last thing you guys wanted to be was to become a services contractor, and the last that's sort of what you became because of how the Pentagon buys. The Pentagon for the last decade, has been talking about fundamentally changing how it does business. Uh, And yet the Andrews of the world, uh, Trey Stevenson, joined us and so has uh, Brian Schimpf. And they said, look, I mean, the reason we got into making hardware was they wouldn't buy our software, but if we made the hardware and put our software in it, they buy it because they know how to buy software. Have you noticed the change, an acceleration, right? We've been talking about acceleration for a decade, Sean. Are you seeing a change in how the Pentagon actually buys to reward the so-called non-traditional suppliers,
1: I, the short answer is yes. Like so, I think, but I, I don't want to. We have a long way to go. So, if, if I start, mm-hmm. let's start with part one of that here. Have I seen the change? Well, let's just start with the counterfactual of in in, in two thousand six, you really even couldn't sell to the department, you know, because of Incutel and the investments Incutel had made. If you were a new entrant, a new technology company, your only chance was to start by selling to the IC. And it took some number of years before it really opened up within DOD. And I'd say you could go back you know, maybe 10 years ago, the innovation environment really started changing in a way where there was a front door for new technology startups who wanted to sell to DOD. Uh, and so I've, I've seen a huge amount of progress there, but I think um, as I reflect on what is ahead of us here, one of the most important things I think the department could really reflect on and and Congress is it needs to be involved here too. Like the you know, it's kind of a two-sided problem, is that the the current setup is a monopsony. And with a monopsony, you really have to say, look, if I as the buyer am not getting what I want, that's my fault. That's the nature of a monopsony. Uh and we also have to think about the focus on cost, schedule, and performance. You know, the other monopsony I think that it, w- it would behoove us to reflect on is Walmart, was Walmart. You know, if we think about Walmart in the 90s, pre-Amazon, everyday low prices, what did they think their job was? Essentially beating up suppliers to reduce the costs that went into it. You know, it was, it, was, it was the commercial sector equivalent of cost schedule performance. Their whole business got rocked by a near pure competitor that came out of nowhere from their perspective and didn't have to play by the rules from their perspective, Amazon. And, you know, that's the dominant company now. And right. so I think you have to think about the ways in which uh, monopsonies can lose sight of innovation and how you have to kind of build that into acquisition. So it is absolutely the case. And I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this. Like we lost a lot with The Last Supper. People tend to think about The Last Supper as, okay, it underscores the monopsony point, which is we could only have Bill Perry tell all of these primes, hey, you guys need to consolidate because it is a monopsony. And you could say, okay, that's an efficient way to spread the budget. But I, But I think- One of the more profound things we lost was that the department has gone more than 30 years without dealing with founder driven companies, um, you know, because we were in this consolidation era. Right. And as a consequence, it it led to the financialization of. Of contracting, you know, the whole business became about, hey, leverage P.E., you know, Um, What is my dividend? How many share buybacks am I doing? Raytheon's doing $13.3 billion of buybacks on $118 billion market cap. It's shocking. And in some sense, it kind of perpetuates the view from inside the building that these are just purely financial actors. And I think one of the powerful things that we're seeing with this emergent defense tech ecosystem is a community of believers. Like there are a lot easier ways to go make money. That's not the primary motivation here, right? They're going to bang their head against the wall to do the thing for the nation. And I see a lot of parallels to the lead up to World War II. You know, when when you think about, you know, we we now think about it as Lear Jet, but then it was William Lear, Hugh, you know, right. H.P. Hewlett Packard. It was it was Sikorsky himself. It was Henry Ford, not the Ford Motor Company. It was Henry Kaiser. You think about how many entrepreneurs were actually involved in the World War II production economy that got this done? Founders, you know, big personalities. Uh, and and I think it's exciting to see that sort of partnership reemerging again. Do you? Uh, think that's really important. Oh, go ahead. One of the luxuries that we had with World War II that we're not going to have anymore is is essentially lend-lease gave us eighteen months to have wartime production while we were at peace, and that meant that we could leverage America's greatest strength, which was mass production. America just figured out mass production; that was our greatest differentiated strength to weep to win and compete with. And if we look at our greatest strength today, it's not mass production; it's software. No, no you know, people talk about tech. No one says American tech because that's a redundant statement. It, it, it's just American tech is tech, and so we have to be thinking about how we're going to help the department in this way.
0: Uh, how do you um, uh, couldn't couldn't agree with you uh, more on all of uh, those uh, steps? Um, the question is, as the Pentagon prepares to release its first ever industrial strategy, Uh, it's going to be rolled out at the Reagan Forum in a couple of weeks by uh, Laura Taylor, Dr. Laura Taylor Calais. What's the right industrial strategy we need for where we are, Uh, right? Because there are protectionist concerns. Uh, there are labor concerns, right? I mean, as, as you said, it's about the talent and we're not generating nearly as much talent as we need, w- whether it's at the shipyards, whether it's on an aircraft assembly line, or whether it's in the software or the AI business, what, what does a smart industrial strategy look like for defense? As far as you're concerned, especially in your corner of the universe.
1: Yeah, well, I, I would not presume to be able to speak to the entirety of the industrial tragedy, but
0: one thing that I see very clearly
1: from you know, we have this unique business where we have half a foot in the commercial world, half a foot in the government world, from the commercial side is production obviously matters, but increasingly bending metal is itself a software-defined process. You know, how do you help Airbus with the A350 ramp? Um, how do you help BP increase hydrocarbon productions? How do you run a mine? You know, you, you think about all of the, how do you help Panasonic build more batteries for Teslas? So how do we, and, and that software defined aspect is America's greatest strength. So our industrial strategy has to recognize that, yeah, of course, if you're not bending metal, you're probably lying to yourself about what's required, how you are gonna field new new capabilities? But on the other side of this, that if you're not bending metal with software, you're probably somehow under leveraging um, our unique competitive advantage out there. And I think that a lot of that can play down. So you think about like the work we do with Panasonic, how are we helping them? Well, we're helping them scale some of their deepest subject matter experts with AI so that a new level one analyst has the same capabilities as a level four, level five troubleshooter. This is a way. This this is, has obvious applications to shipbuilding, shipyards, maintenance, repair. It has obvious applications to the aging nuclear triad and fleet. It, there's so many ways that we could be leveraging this technology to get more out of our existing human capital, train up new human capital, uh, solve challenges our services have around retention, recruiting, with
0: taking with taking nothing away from the fundamental blocking
1: and tackling that also has to be done.
0: The department does uh, under the guise of acquisition fairness. A whole bunch of things that actually uh, are initiative sapping, right? Um, w- once upon a time, you know, you talked about the World War II generation. If you brought a better idea, they would buy that better mousetrap more often than not. Uh, now, if you have that better mousetrap, you have the better software, it can lead to a requirement and a competition, and, and ultimately you end up losing it. We're finding that on the hardware side of things. This ecosystem has developed the way it has, before a specific reason, um, do you see a change in the department to reward a to reward innovation to acquire that innovation when it sees it, as opposed to going "sham brilliant idea"? Now I'm going to start a two and a half year process to define a requirement. And oh by the way, by the time this is all finished with. Somebody can buy into that program with actually not nearly the kind of capability that you originally or innovation that you brought to it. Do you, do you see them changing how they fundamentally do business to accelerate the process to, to deliver the kinds of things we need at the speed we need them rather than at the speed with which we are delivering them, which is glacial often?
1: It's happening slowly, you know. I I wish I had a better read out there where I could say it's happening all at once. But many of these things I think feel like they happen slowly until uh, you kind of step back and you look at how much you've accomplished here. So look, this this is the fundamental challenge: is, is how can we go faster? I often kind of muse it would be much better if the department spent half the money in a quarter of the time. Like the the, the factor that truly matters for innovation is time, speed. How do we play into that? Um, and You you know, you need to fund these things with seriousness. But I think in in many ways, the time discount value of money doesn't, um, it's not as obvious to folks who are in the department who don't understand that you're waiting to raise your next round. I can remember so many meetings when we were younger, where someone would say, oh, you know, I don't have the money to pay for this. I can only pay you X instead of 5X. And then we would kind of tell them almost, almost just, just telling them the, the truth, which is like, I understand that. That means I have to go sell a part of my business to outside investors to raise the capital to survive, hoping that, but it would, you know, it, it, you could say that, but it would, they couldn't grip what you're really saying. It didn't, didn't mean anything to them. And I think that's really one of the things that we need to help the department to understand is as a monopsonist, if you want this innovation, you really need to understand the cycles that these younger companies go through. You know, fortunately for us, we're on the other side of that now as, as a public company, but how can we help make that easier for them so that you as the buyer can get more of what you want and i think it's really about helping them connect those dots on the flip side i'm spending a lot of my time and energy to what i think is essentially the antidote to the last supper that i'm calling the first breakfast which is great now that i'm on the other side of this as a publicly traded company can i lower the rope or the ladder to help as many of the, as many of these other companies climb up here with me and in particular thinking about you know if you thought about okay palantir has its software But actually, a big part of our success was was the infrastructure around our software that enabled us to achieve accreditation, that enabled us, in, in, in short form, I'll say, get to the starting line so that the revenue meter could even start to spin. How do I give that capability to all the other companies in defense tech so that they can get to revenue faster, they can raise their next rounds more comfortably, and as a consequence, be part of a Big Ten ecosystem that actually delivers the deterrence that we need in these highly
0: uncertain geopolitical times. Um, well, and it's also good for you because it helps you forge those early stage partnerships with the next generation of companies, uh, right, uh, in sort of a positive codependency. I don't want to uh, portray that well, as- I think uh,
1: that's uh, exactly I mean, look, I think uh, as a company who is maybe taking advantage of our services here, I think they'd want to know that this is not philanthropy. Like, yes, I, I think this is doing right by the ecosystem, but actually I think there's a business to be built here. And largely my, my thesis around this is that the next SI is not a systems integrator, it's a software integrator. Right. And a lot of SIs have been trying to do this with billable hours. You can think about it as software integration as billable hours, but I wanna do software integration as code. And if you if you look at Palantir another way, from the outside, maybe it seems monolithic, but really my role as CTO on the inside I have hundreds of independent software teams all releasing their code, having to deploy it to hundreds of environments. How, what's the and I'm managing that product? You can say I'm like I'm the equivalent of the PEO in this context. Well, what's the difference between that and saying, look, I'm a PEO. I want a big tent vendor ecosystem. I want lots of soft, modern software companies to be able to participate. I want them to be able to deliver their offering to me as a service to iterate with end users, deliver innovation, create a competitive environment uh, that. That allows the software companies to do what they're best at. It allows them to operate in a frame of recurring software revenue uh, and and not services. And it allows the PEO to have what they really want which is constant innovation, competition, uh, quick delivery, getting out of the way, replacing slow processes with software. And I think we've kind of uniquely have been in a position to, to build and deliver this for ourselves over the last 20 years and now open that up to the ecosystem.
0: Um, I- increasingly, um, you know, a- as you said, almost you know every single thing we do uh, is uh, software dependent, right? I mean, there is even antiquated hardware that becomes relevant. B fifty two is, as its name implies, um, nineteen fifty two. the The newest one was delivered in nineteen sixty, and yeah. It's because of steadily improving um, electronics uh, and electronic capabilities largely. Yeah, it's going to get new engines, uh, you know, because it's going to stay in service for another couple of decades. Um, do, do, it, 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 what is the key to getting this software sham fielded in more rapid bytes, right? People talk about DevSecOps, uh, they talk about the importance of security. At the same time, the department wants more open architecture systems, uh, right? That puts you in kind of a tricky position what what does this future look like to get speed security uh, and and really the benefits of AI and that big data analysis that could actually ident- help you identify trends you know whether in signal recognition or anything else with with more acuity I mean it's it's a complicated equation. What's the way to do that? Yeah no I think fast? you're asking
1: the right question and I think uh, it starts with saying look actually the job is to get out of the way. Let's look at this process and think about all the places that we're facing delay. Okay, we face delay on how we do accreditation. Awesome. How do we make accreditation software defined? Uh, we face delay on managing and deploying continuously software to a large number of nodes where you have complex interdependencies. Great. Let's let's and forget CI/CD. Let's do autonomous deployment and delivery of software. Um, we you know, the, the focus on Mosa is really, it comes down to, look, I want to be able to plug and play things. So if we have this competitive ecosystem of commercial and government software entities, then there are going to be standardized interfaces that the government controls that that guarantee interoperability. So that sort of data integration, data bus layer uh, becomes the next place where you can lose a lot of velocity. So I, I think like this there are like five or six key components that if we can define in software as a software integrator, you're essentially getting out of the way and then you can innovate at the speed of mission. And so then the second part is how do you innovate at the speed of mission? And and one of the concepts I've been kind of kicking around and and hope to articulate is I think in some sense, agile development, everyone loves agile. I think in some sense, maybe agile is not even wrong. It's not that it's wrong, it's that somehow it's missing the entire point, which is that what you really need is hyper distributed software development. You can think of traditional product development as following some sort of normal distribution, some sort of Gaussian function, where mm-hmm. the product manager is taking in a bunch of requirements, averaging them, and then making a call of what, what to go build. And lots of things need to like lots of things fit that paradigm. It's it's appropriate. Um, but essentially you're 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 bottlenecking development through a central choke point now, which is to the point of let's figure out what's slowing us down. This is gonna be one of them. An alternative approach to this is, re- is saying, you know what? Just like venture startups, there are going to be some number of feature requests that are driven, that are power law. That actually the idea is so creative, so unique that averaging it down with all the other ideas is just purely dilutive. And that you want to capture the genius of this user or this commander or this unit from the field to define the fighting formation and technique and software that everyone is going to use. And it's very hard, I'll tell you after 20 years of doing this, to predict ex-ansi, where is that going to come from? So you need a large... Um, kind of sensor apparatus to say like, okay, well, who has the good ideas? How am I going to back them? How am I going to make sure that the rest of my product development org doesn't get in the way of prototyping, building that, fielding that, and then scaling that across the whole foundation? And I think leveraging a lot of the concepts around software integrator is going to enable the government to do just that, which then enables the best American software companies to compete and to prove their value and to scale their contracts to be more successful.
0: Department has a tendency, as my producer often jokes, right? It wants to get to uh, sharks with lasers, but it does not necessarily have its data uh, uh, act uh, sorted out. The, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, the JAKE, uh, part of its role was to try to do that. We have a CDM, uh, CDMO. We have a Chief Data Management Officer in the Pentagon, which is a very positive step. Where are we in the process of? rationalizing and making sense of the thousands upon thousands of thousands of different data formats and sets and the information, actually, we were, we're never going to recover because nobody's ever going to take it out of the boxes that exist in a warehouse somewhere uh, in, in the middle of nowhere where they're also keeping the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, at, at, at the end of the day, what are how are, how are we doing on rationalizing the enterprise so that the data we produce is usable um, and that the software we are installing is actually open and easily updatable, right? I mean, it's a it's a kind of a two-pronged challenge, isn't
1: it? it absolutely. I mean, I think this is the key challenge. So, first I would say through our government web, you know, we we have been Integrating data source system by source system, clawing at it over the last 20 years. If you just think about Army Vantage, it's over 400 source systems. If you think about the data that's in Maven, it's all the warfighting data you could really need. The same thing with Air Force Envision or Space Forces Warp Core. And so, one of the things which really just GFE, so there's no monetization here, is like, okay, we've integrated this data, it's clean, um, it, it's well modeled. Here are APIs and software development kits for any defense tech company to be able to use to get access to that data where the underlying users have the the permission to see that data. You don't have to worry about the authentication, it's all handled, the authentication and authorization. So hopefully on one hand, to kind of answer your question is, I feel like we've kind of built this incrementally and we hope people can stand on the shoulders of that. Now, the second bit, which I think is important, is also the core lesson from our commercial business is that it's structurally very hard to say, hey, I'm just gonna go integrate all of this data. And then once we do that, we can get on to the next bit. That you need to solve this problem working backwards by saying, what decisions am I going to make? What data do I need to make those decisions? Let's like a greedy algorithm, go organize, model, integrate that data first. And as soon as you do that, you realize, great, I've done that. Now there's a second decision I want to affect. 50% of the data I've already organized and well modeled. The next 50% I needed to go get. So this becomes the way that you pace out the work where you can validate that the data you've integrated, you've actually done correctly because you can use it to make a decision. One of the most common mistakes we saw with commercial customers when they were calling us in to help them, you know, big, big companies, US commercial entities, is that they had what they thought was a data foundation. And if you, if you just look at it by the definition, it's there. Yes, all of our data is there. It's one, one central source of truth. But until the business is using it to validate decisions, you don't realize all the ways in which you've mismodeled it, the ways that it's incomplete, the ways that it's, it's not ready. And so I think there's something very healthy about thinking about this as vertical slices that you're going to scale. I know it's a little bit um, contrarian, but it is... Candidly, the only thing I've seen work, and I think that's essentially what's happening. We should embrace that. And the other reason I think that's really important is we should think of data integration as a condition to be managed, not a problem to be solved. And that's largely because data itself is proliferating. The number of new data sources that are relevant itself grows every day. So almost by definition, last year, if you conceived of a system that was going to integrate all of your data, it wouldn't include things that exist now, today, in the present. So that marginal cost of data integration is everything. And the way to solve that efficiently is by working backwards from the new decisions that can be improved by the incorporation of that data.
0: Um, Let me ask you one uh, last uh, question, although that uh, point was uh, tremendous. I think many people don't realize that the amount of data we have is actually doubling every six months. Right? Uh, yeah. So whatever it is, whatever solution you thought you had to add to that problem has just be, is going to be exponentially worse by the time you actually even consider fielding a solution. Um, you've noted, uh, Sham, uh, that we, or that the department is making progress, right? On a whole number of fronts, even though it may not seem like it, there is progress that's being made. From From your standpoint, what's required to get us to the next step? Are they, Legislative right. Congress always likes to get involved and says, "Okay, you know, the issue is organizational. Um, Some people say it's it's just leadership uh, at the end of the day. Is it approach and the aging out of I mean, I I don't mean to sound crass, uh, you know, aging out of people who sort of don't get it and the entry of younger generation of people who do get it. I'm very enthused that a new generation of talent in the department who I think really gets it. what what's going to be required because yeah. we don't have a lot of time to keep screwing with this right we have to actually demonstrably get faster in how we do this and it's not necessarily that apparent right i mean frank kendall is talking about fast faster fast faster fast and then there are some people in the system who go oh you know frank's a little overheated you know I mean, let's we, we should really go a little bit more slowly and and more methodically you know let's not get too excited I'll leave you with two thoughts here. Uh,
1: the first is I think we, we should think about, we talk a lot about how competitive is in the industrial base and that warrants more thought. But I also wonder if we should say, you know, my, my claim to you would be it's more competitive than people think, but it, it certainly should be more competitive. But what we don't think about enough is um, how do we use market forces within the department itself? One example would be what we've done with JADC2. We essentially said, because this is how we're structured. So to be very clear, I understand there are profound implications for this, but we said, hey, Army, I'm going to give you some money for project convergence. Navy, here's some money for overmatch. Here's some money for ABMS to the Air Force. You guys should go build JADC2 in your service, which is already a little bit contradictory to the mission. If we started realizing that, hey, with software, and the integration of software to our weapon systems, maybe what I should be doing is giving that money to the services and actually asking them to go build software that is gonna go compete for the COCOM CG's decision. Like I'm gonna say all of us are building software, and when I when I, as the army go to IPC, I'm actually. I want the AOC to use my software. I want PacFleet to use my software. And so how do we leverage more competition within the PM structure? Because I think that's one of the places that's, that that we really lack it. What would get you to want a field capability faster than your schedule? What would get you to blow up your own plan and inject new AI, AI technologies that came out three months ago? Well, if you're if you're managing this to cost schedule performance and you as the PM have no competition, I'll tell you the answer is nothing. Nothing will get you to right. do that. So that... The only way to do that is that there has to be some sort of friendly competition, just like the Army Navy game. Maybe some people wouldn't wouldn't debate that that's friendly, but I think friendly competition to make us all better. You know, compete in code so that you know the ultimate competition against our adversary is, is going to be one where we win. The second thought I'd leave you with is I very much see this, and I you know maybe there's some correlation to age, but I think it's actually it correlates more to natural inclination or skill um, proclivity is that which commanders, which humans in the system actually view software as a malleable weapon system that they're going to be personally involved with. You know, I think the ability to be a a product manager in the Silicon Valley sense of the word, to sit there, to edit mocks, to have an opinion on the workflow, that's going to be a requirement as a a CG, you know, and... Some CGs view that, it's like, yeah, obviously, that's what I'm going to do today. That's a good use of time. I'm going to author the the, the warfighting workflows that, that define the embodiment of our doctrine in software. And some people view it as something that needs to be delegated to the eight or delegated somewhere down. And I think that's going to be a pretty sharp division that kind of naturally shakes itself out here. I, I think one of the other things that we need to think about is that we, we need to be shifting more of this sort of discretion over to the COCOMs or over to the warfighting elements where they can say look, you all as services, you all as PMs, you're providing me things. I'm going to vote with what do I want to go fight with? Now, that makes much less sense for an exquisite system like the B21. And it makes a lot more sense for software capabilities that can actually be fielded between now and 2025 that define the fight that we're going to have in the Pacific. But I think for all the programs, we should be thinking a little bit about where do things fall on the spectrum here?
0: Ultimately, how do we get there in sort of changing this model, right? Because at the end of the day, we're talking about uh, the you know warfighting environment is changing. The priorities are changing. The power of information at the end of the day uh, is uh, a, a critical weapon. Um, there's a sense, as you said earlier in the program, that the existing industrial base uh, is um you know, a more more financially focused, perhaps, than founder companies that are willing to put, willing to put a lot of skin and investment in the game. So, how is it that you change this model?
1: Well, I think one of the things that um, the department will probably have the most struggle with is the nature of VC investing, the outcomes that are required to continue to have that capital spigot driving and investing in problems in national security. So when we think about a venture portfolio, it's dominated by power law returns. So that means you expect one company in the portfolio, maybe two, to be wildly successful. You expect most, you know, let's call it half of the rest to essentially get just get your money back. And the other, the, re- the remainder to go to zero. So, your returns are dominated by one or two companies. That means you need one or two really big wins. So, it, I know the department is much more comfortable in a scenario where they kind of peanut butter spread the returns around. I mean, hey, I'm going to give a lot of money to lots of companies, or really a, a little money to a lots of companies. But as a consequence, I think unfortunately, you're just going to have a lot of companies fail slowly. And that for this right. model to work, where you, you need a few really big winners uh, and some middle sized tier outcomes, that will then enable those funds to go raise more capital, to invest in the next set of problems the department has. That's the that's what's driving the virtual cycle of dominance in American tech. And I think that's what we want to
0: have uh, in the dominance in national security. So that would mean, right, I mean, the departments, uh, it, it's funny that when it comes to industrial strategy, people say the government shouldn't be in the business of picking winners and losers, which sort of misses the point that that's exactly what the Pentagon has always done, picks winners and losers. Isn't isn't what you're saying, basically, that they have I to get right. back to what good. it is they do?
1: Yeah, they, they, I think it's a, it's an uncomfortable position to be in, which I understand. But if you're a monopsonist, that's exactly your job. You're, you're
0: picking winners and losers. Uh, indeed, uh, which is a great place uh, to uh, leave off. Uh, Sham, thank you uh, very much. Absolutely terrific conversation. And again, looking to welcome you back on the program uh, in the future to con- uh, continue the discussion. Thanks again. Thank you. All right, that was terrific.